Because all the masters of science Have shown a great light on us all I envy the path of your shadow That offers a wondrous call Where promises lead us to ruin A kiss can drive you to your grave We leap off the edge of tomorrow And sink to the depths of today Hello and welcome to another episode of Too Stupid to Know I Can't I'm Roger, owner of the drum shop in Tulsa, Oklahoma and your host This is a special episode for me because I get to spend some time with a really good friend of mine and converse with the legendary Bill Dedimore of Pork Pie Percussion. You might know it, you might not know it, but either way, you've heard his drums. I've known Bill for some time and have been an admirer of his work for years, only to be fortunate enough to carry his drums in our shop. And it really does make me smile because he makes some really, really cool stuff. Bill's been working on, refinishing, or making drums for over 40 years and has worked with some of the greats, including the legendary Jeff Picaro of Toto. During this episode, I ask some internet myth questions regarding pork pie percussion and allow him to speak his mind and his piece about these questions. We all know the internet's kind of a slippery slope, but I figure getting the information directly from the source was way better than speculating. In addition, we talk about the revitalization of Roger's drums that Bill has been an absolute key factor in, and it's just amazing that he gets to rebuild a piece of history. Finally, we do touch on the China-Taiwan scenario that is a tenuous situation with a lot of different challenges. Cost of manufacturing are skyrocketing, uh, there's government intervention now with minimum wages and benefits for these unsung heroes of so many different industries, that it's nice to see some changes are taking place. So sit back, enjoy your time with Bill Dedimore of Pork Pie Percussion on this episode of Too Stupid to Know That I Can't. Bill Dedimore, welcome, welcome. And I'm super excited to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you asking very much. Oh my gosh. It's, I think it's been a long time coming, you know, just being friends for this long and not having an actual chance to sit down and discuss some real... I don't know what I would feel kind of important questions and just historical questions that I think people have always tried to ask or the internet has tried to screw up in some capacity or another. <laughs> right. You know, and all of a sudden now it's, it's law in verbatim without asking the source. Right. So uh, let, let's just kind of go to some of the initial maybe questions. Um, my first one is going to be, what is pork pie percussion or how did you arrive at pork pie percussion? Okay. There is a uh, movie, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a movie from New Zealand from the eighties. It's called uh, goodbye pork pie. And it's a uh, very funny movie. Um, and it's about uh, two guys that are going across uh, New Zealand uh, looking for uh, a girl that uh, that they uh, that one of them broke up with, and they end up selling parts of the car to get uh, uh, to get gas and to get parts for the car to make it go faster. So uh, my friend Mark and I were hanging out at my house one night, sucking down a beer and uh, trying to think of different names. And I just said, "What do you think about pork pie? Pork pie percussion?" And he goes, "Man, it's great." And that was uh, that was how it uh, how the whole thing started. Well, with that, how did you 
so that's that's kind of a, a crazy way to arrive at a name. It's it's. <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost like missing persons kind of went into the same thing. They were, I think Terry and I think Terry and Warren were on the phone with each other, and one of them said missing, and the other said persons. Um, and it just and it I just yeah, it just kind of happened like that. Uh, how. How did how did how did pork pie start? How did you how did you get into being the guy that's doing all this work uh, behind the scenes or unbeknownst to the masses? And how did pork pie really get its start? Where did how did you become who? How did you become Bill Dedimore that everybody knows? I wanted there's. Um... I, I used to uh, race uh, motocross, uh, you know, when I was younger. And then my parents got into, um, my dad started a little business at the house uh, selling antique Ford car parts. Uh, and he made a little shop in the back of the house, which we, my, my wife and I bought, the house that we live in, we bought from my parents when my father started getting sick uh, with Alzheimer's. So... Uh, behind the garage is the little building that he made. He did just like an add-on to the uh, to the garage, um, <clears throat> which we still use. My my son and I use that now as our drum room. That's so, super cool. Yeah. So I at uh, when I stopped racing moto motocross, um, I had always uh, been into music from uh, from my brother. He uh, uh, he, he always uh, was, he, he always had cool cars and listened to cool music. And when he was drafted and went off to Vietnam, he left me his, uh, turntable and all of his singles, which were the monkeys and the Beatles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, so, wow. <clears throat> so I used to listen to that stuff all the time. And I always, you know, there was, I always wanted to, uh, uh, to play drums. And then when you know, the, the motorcycle riding racing, uh, kind of had ran its course. When I started uh, talking about taking drum lessons, my folks were like, well, you know, you have been in and out of uh, a couple of different hobbies and it's cost us a ton of money. So if you want to play drums, you got to figure it out. So uh, there was a guy in our neighborhood who was my age who I was... Uh, Riding my Stingray by his by, by his house. That's how long ago it was. That's awesome. And, was it a three speed stick I, or a single? Also, so um, I heard the drums coming out of his uh, house, and I knocked on his door and went inside his uh, garage where he had everything. And there was this giant kit. I mean, there were toms everywhere and cymbals everywhere, and you know. And uh, I said, you know, because I had been looking around at drum sets, and I said, God, how did you get the money together to put all this stuff together to, to make this kit? And he said, you know, and I, I didn't know any, yeah, I knew nothing <clears throat> about uh, drum sets at the time. So he said, he, go, he said, uh, well, what I do is I find used drums, and I take the hardware off. He showed me that there were screws, you know, that hold the lugs on. And he said, I take all the parts off and I go get some colored plastic. There was a place right near our house called Gemalite Plastic that sold sheets of uh, PVC. 
So I would go, he said, I go down there, I get these sheets of plastic PVC, and then I, I wrap it around the drum, put some glue on it to hold it in place, poke a hole, put the parts back on, and I've got a drum set that's, you know, cost me nothing, and, uh, you know, it's, and it's cool. So I started looking for uh, uh, pieces and parts. And so my first drum set was just thrown together stuff. And uh, yeah, I changed the color on it probably four or five times because I'm like, I got to have a white drum set. You know, I got to have a <laughs> black one. I got to have one with stripe. I got to have, you know, so I changed it up um, uh, a, f a few times, <clears throat> which led me to uh, going out and finding um, like uh, 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 you know, back in the day, there was tons of, of uh, drum stores around. Yeah. So. I would go to these stores and look for parts and pieces and, and, you know, then I got into um, getting, buying snare drums and redoing them and then selling them in a paper that we had here that was called the recycler. Oh, I remember it all too well. Yeah. Is it so, still there? Um, then, uh, you know, I was always reading modern drummer because they had tech tips and they had this and the articles and then I and then I heard about uh, uh, snare bed or uh, uh, bearing edges, <clears throat> and you know how guys were. Re, uh, there was I think that at the time there was one guy Pat Foley that was uh, recutting bearing edges, and uh, so I would read everything, and then I would just jump into it and figure it out, because you know I mean at that time there was the, well first off the internet didn't exist. And there yeah. were no books on how to build a drum. And there, I mean, there was nothing. You had to figure it out from nothing. So I, I just, uh, you know, would go to my father and say, hey, I, I need to do this. What do you think? You know, let's try this. Let's do that. Because my father was, the, uh, uh, was a child of the Depression. And he could fix anything and, or build anything. He could do anything that he wanted to do. And he instilled that in my brothers and myself. So... You know, there's, uh, I don't, when, if, if something comes up at the house or here at the shop, I don't look at it as, as like, you know, we got to call. call. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you make it yourself or you, you deal with it yourself. You know, I, I'm a big proponent for all these guys out that are out there making drums that are starting to make drums and they go online. Where can I find a, a book on how to do that? I, I get, I called, I, I always write to them. Don't buy anything. Figure it out on your own because you'll be a better builder. And for all the tools that you need, because you go to Home Depot, everything's made for sheets of plywood. They don't make anything for anything round. So any all the tools that I have, I like making as many tools as I can as I can because, well, first off, because it's cool. And second <laughs> off, it, it works the way I want it to work. Okay, so just for clarity, and maybe just to help out some of the people that aren't mechanically inclined, when you say yeah. a lot of the tools at Home Depot are built for plywood and straight cuts, how yeah. does a tool in that application differ from what you need to build drums? Well, um, a perfect example is uh, if you go to a table saw with a, a round cylinder and try to make a straight cut on a round cylinder mm -hmm. it's it's pretty dodgy because if it moves a little bit then it, the the saw blade grabs the shell 
and it can throw the shell. It can, you know, it can jerk it down so your hands get too close to the blade. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I made a I made a contraption that sits on my uh, uh, on my table saw that attaches to the the adjustable gate, and the gate is the 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 piece that slides sideways so you can adjust how deep your cut is going to be. Okay, right? I'm familiar. So I made a, I made a, a, a this square piece of uh, 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 wood that sits right there and it attaches by C clamps to the to the uh, adjustable gate. And inside of that plywood fixture is steel rollers. So you actually roll the the shell on these steel rollers, and it makes uh, making a precise cut uh, a breeze. And it's that the whole thing was I, I, I'm looking at it and going, I have to make this safe because right now it's not safe. Uh, and mm-hmm. if, because if I want one of my employees to cut a shell, if something's you know. If I get hurt, it's one thing. But if I hurt one of my guys, you know, that's a life changer. And I'm not going to have that happen. So everything we make is to, to, to service a round shell and to make it safe. Because I won't put up with somebody being hurt on my dime. That's awesome. That's, <clears throat> that is far more considerate than I think a lot of working environments this day and age. Oh, I tell my guys almost daily. I'm like... I'm like, hey, you can't do that. It's not safe. Stop. Let's figure out how to do it the right way. It has to be safe. Because I don't want to have a conversation with somebody's wife saying, oh, you know, your, your husband cut his finger off and, I'm, I, and it's on my watch. Yeah. I'm not going to have it. Well, it's, it's much like that situation. And, and not to use a movie as a reference, but in Walk the Line. You know, yeah. young Johnny Cash went off fishing while his brother worked in the, you know, chopping wood. And all of a sudden now he's got a wooden two by four shoved into his chest, killing him. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it and it does happen that quickly. I was stupid enough to try to chop my finger off on a on a table saw once. and I'll never do that again. Sure. Yep. And, and it only takes once to understand how sharp those blades are. Yeah. And it happens before you even know that it's happened. It's done. And you're and you're going, oh, my God, what do I do now? Yep. I. I did it and I, I'm not say that I'm, I, I won't say that I'm fearful of table saws now. I just definitely approach them with much more caution and I would say less reckless abandon than I once did. Oh yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yep. I had my son. It's funny you, you mentioned that I had my son uh, this week. I had him off on the, the uh, buffing wheel for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, it was really funny because he finished uh, uh, buffing this one drum that took him forever to do, which when somebody's learning something, I don't have a clock. It's, you know, they take as much time as they need mm-hmm. and, you know, they finish it. And then we figure out, usually we try to figure out how to fix it when, once they, you know, uh, butcher the first the first time they're on the uh, buffing wheel. Yep. And uh, so my main guy, uh, uh, my main uh, buffing guy here, his name is Jose. And Jose can buff a kit in a couple hours, and he, yeah, I mean, he's phenomenal. And uh, so Zach was on the uh, uh, on the wheel for got hour plus, you know, on a snare drum shell, and he barely got it done. You know, we had to do it again, which is fine on on a, on a first try. But he went over to uh, he went over to Jose and he said, Jose, I have so much respect for you being on that wheel now. He said, I had no idea what it, uh, what it was like, and I had no idea how hard it was. Now, 
in that same vein, if I may, when you say you're buffing out the shell, or is this after the painting process, after the lacquer coating, after the wet dry sanding, this is now getting to that high gloss finish? Yep, yes sir. And since we're talking about paint, and, and I'm gonna ask a very important question in a minute, mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you were to say I put, let's say just to do a gloss black lacquer shell, let's take mm -hmm. the most, what appears on the surface to be the most simple of colors, but I think is one of the most challenging is a high gloss black finish. Oh yeah, everybody hates doing black. So if you were to say, I make four passes of black, six passes of clear lacquer, like tell us, tell me a little bit about the paint process. Once you're you're ready to lacquer that shell and really dial it in. What's your paint process like? Sure. Um, <clears throat> the first thing is to know that uh, the term lacquer is a generic term for paint. No, nobody, nobody in their right mind uses lacquer anymore. Okay. Uh, the, and first off, because it's the, uh, the it, lacquer is absolutely horrible for the environment. I okay. mean, it is, it is so bad for the environment. Uh, yes, it makes things breathe, and you know, guitar makers love lacquer and all that. But it is so bad for the environment. Um, so, what uh, people that are doing production, like myself, what mm -hmm. we use is uh, our uh, basically like a high tech catalyzed finish. So, uh, for my base coat, which is uh, when you look at a uh, I don't know if you ever watch a, uh, a car show where they're painting a car and they, they cover the car in a, in a gray uh, primer mm -hmm. and then they, they block sand that down so it's nice and smooth. Yes. Okay. We do the same thing on a paint job on a drum or a guitar. It's, we all use all the same, almost all the same materials. Okay. The, um, the paint uh, that I use for my base coat is a polyester resin. Polyester resin is basically what boats and surfboards are made out of. That you 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 use polyester resin to uh, to make a fiberglass boat or a fiberglass uh, surfboard, right? So it's the liquid of the of a of a fiberglass finish is polyester resin. Well, wow, the nice okay. thing about polyester is that it's incredibly hard, and it dries uh, basically it dries overnight. I could I could spray something today. And I could uh, start working on it tomorrow. Oh wow! So, yeah. So, um, so when I base coat, I take a, 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 a shell, and I get it all prepped and sanded so it's ready for the polyester base coat. I put six coats of polyester base coat on, and that dries, and then it is sanded. Then, if we're, like, we're going to talk about like if we're doing a black finish because that's what we started on, uh -huh. so. Six coats of polyester, uh, sand it flat, and then we go to the black. We go into the back end of the spray booth. We have uh, get the black paint out. I do two to three coats of black uh, color, and then I let that dry for X amount of time. And then for my top coats, personally, other people use different things. Um, I use a polyester resin. Well, let me back up. The when I base coat the shell. That is uh, what is called a sanding sealer. Okay. So then I, I, so I put on the sanding sealer, I sand it, put the black on, and then when I go to put my top coat on, 
I use uh, six coats of polyester, clear polyester top coat, which is basically almost crystal clear. Wow. And that dries uh, overnight, and the next day we are starting the sanding process. So in the sanding process, polyester is so hard that um, <clears throat> we start off sanding with a hand sander. Uh, like it's called the DA sander. Um, we sand the, the, uh, the painted finish with uh, 500 grit paper. Wow. Then we go to 800 grit paper with the DA, and then we sand it by hand with a block. So you've seen all the sanding on the car bodies yeah, on the car shows? Absolutely. Yeah, we do the same thing on uh, the the uh, the paint job with um, 800 grit paper. Then we go to 1200 grit paper by hand, and then the final sanding that we do is 1200 grit paper on the DA. And the reason we do that is because the faster a sander turns or does it or uh, does it's uh, it's a, it's called a random orbit sander. So the faster mm -hmm. it spins, basically, the finer the scratches are going to be. So when we sand it by hand, we're we're sanding it by hand to flatten the finish. Wow. When we sand with the DA, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get rid of those. Uh, the big, broad sanding strokes that we leave in by hand with its tiny little circles, because it's the small little, the tiny little circles are finer than the scratches that we leave in the finish by hand, which wow. in the end is going to make it easier to come off on the wheel. It's crazy. So then after we finish sanding with the 1200 grit paper, I'm sorry, I've got a trash no, truck outside. You're fine. Um, so after we sand with the uh, DA, then it goes to the buffing machine, and we have everything is uh, we have special compounds for each wheel. The first wheel that we use we call a cut wheel, and what you're doing is you're cutting uh, the finish. You're you're basically getting rid of the scratches that you put in by sanding. So in effect, the uh, the uh, 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 the compound that you use on the wheel is basically a finer grit sandpaper than the last one that we used. So we do that in a certain, we do that in a, uh, like if you're holding the shell, uh, top and bottom, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we put vertical, we, we, we buff that vertically. Then it goes to the second wheel, which is a polish wheel. And we do that uh, going horizontally with the, with the grain. <clears throat> so there's, there's literally just excluding build time, bearing edge, drill, there's hours involved in finishing one shell. Oh yeah, yeah. And that, that's I'm not even done. After we hit the, hit it on the second wheel, then we go to a third wheel where we use a paste wax. And the paste wax, basically, what the paste wax does is any uh, uh, any um, scratches that are left from the polish wheel. Which, I mean, if you looked at it, you know, from the, uh, uh, when the polish wheel is done, if mm -hmm. you looked at it, you go, well, that's perfect. But then we can make it better by using this liquid compound, liquid wax, basically. Mm -hmm. And what it, what it does is basically it fills in any scratches, any micro fine scratches that are left over from the, uh, uh, the polish wheel 
are filled in with this liquid compound or liquid paste compound. Wow. And then it's done. Holy God. Now, because I'm, I'm smart enough to get myself into trouble and mm -hmm. I'm, and I, and I may put my foot in my mouth with this statement. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, do you feel that's why a lot of tiny builders just go ahead and wrap PVC or laminate around their shells so that they don't have to waste in their eyes that time on that much finishing? Uh, respectfully, no. And here, here's okay. the thing. The, 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 the paints that we use mm -hmm. for, um, uh, for what we do mm -hmm. are basically, there's really not a lot of difference between the materials that we use and what's used on a car. Okay. So the issue is that the paints that we use are incredibly toxic. Okay. So a guy with the materials that I described that, that, uh, that, you know, that I told you that I used, uh -huh. there, there, it would, you, if, if you lived in a, a regular neighborhood where you had neighbors and, people that you actually liked <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that at your house because the entire neighborhood is going to stink like uh like a surfboard shop i mean it's oh, wow. going to stink and uh for an example the um uh, 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 uh the colors that we use mm. are exactly the same colors that are used on cars and they are catalyzed uh, catalyzing is the only way you're going to get a hard, a rock hard finish where okay. people call it glass hard. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a really, really hard finish. Okay. The only way you're going to get that is with catalyst. And, uh, for the colors that we use, which I said are, are all automotive acrylic urethane, um, uh, uh, colors, it's basically liquid plastic. So oh, you wow. put a catalyst in there to dry it. And the catalyst you use is called an isocyanate, and there is cyanide in that. That's the the cyanate is a cyanide. Oh my so, goodness! Yeah, it's got really nasty shit in it. So you have to have a regulated spray booth. I mean, if you don't, you're nuts with this stuff. You, I mean, you have to do that. You know, and so that's why guys. Uh, don't do that, and also the paint is incredibly expensive. I mean, a gallon of color is sometimes $200. I bought a gallon of paint one time, one gallon of paint, a certain color orange that a guy wanted, and the, the paint was $800. Holy mackerel. For a gallon of paint. So then maybe my question would have been better served to do the quality of finish that you do with your paint and your finish. It's very cost prohibitive to somebody that's up and coming or newer. Yes, and also the uh, like the machine that I have for uh, uh, for uh, for buffing. Uh huh. I mean that machine that machine is a beast. I mean it's huge and it's you know it's got uh, it's got a five horse motor. It's it's got uh, uh, the pads are twelve inches wide. Oh my goodness! Um, and when you turn it on, it makes the the lights in the entire building dim down and go back up. <laughs> you know, and it makes it it shakes the whole shop. The, the whole shop is, is shaking from this machine. Wow. And but you got to have that. You got to have that because polyester is so hard that you have to have something that's going to cut the polyester. That's incredible. It's not easy. 
uh, no, I, I would expect not. That's that <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah. So this leads me to the question of the Picaro blue, which is one of my favorite colors that you do. Uh-huh. It's a very classy color. It's very subtle. But it's just enough bling. How how did that color come? How did you arrive at that? How, what? How did it become influenced and how did that kind of relationship formulate to make that color for him? Sure. Uh, so I uh, received a call. Uh, I was, uh, what's funny is when I, when I think about, you know, this is how I think of the business. Mm-hmm. I started in, in the bedroom when I lived with my parents, right? And then when I moved out into my own place, I had a single car garage. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to my next place, I had a double car garage. So every it's like every every uh, different incarnation of the uh, business, I doubled my floor space by getting a bigger garage. Oh wow! So I was uh, when I was at my first house with my single car garage, uh, just really just starting out. Um, I and how many years ago? How many years ago did you start before uh, we go too I, far? The, I I I I got my uh, business license in um, 1987, and so, there was probably five years before that that I was you know just kind of doing it out of my house and my bedroom and you know my parents' garage. So, you know, that, that's forty years in. Yeah, it's awesome. So I'm sorry, I just had to, I wanted to get that out just to, to kind of put the level of experience that you have so that people understand this isn't just some fly-by-night little thing. This is a lifetime of work that you've put into pork pie. Yeah, yeah, basically. Okay, so back to the, back to my question of the Picaro Blue. Yep, so I was, um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, when I first started going independent, well, before I quit my job uh, to do this full time, I was working at uh, Rocketdyne. Well, you, you're from this area, right? Oh, yeah. If I, remember. I remember. Okay. Yep. So I right out of college, I started working at Rocketdyne. And um, so I, 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 I stopped working at Rocketdyne in... 87 i think and uh then i worked at uh, dw for a year as a Um, painter though as a painter yeah uh and um so in 88 i think it was 88 i i quit dw and started doing my thing full time and i was not making a dime i mean i i was i i wasn't making anything i was just barely scraping by you know, just I was lucky that first off, I was lucky I wasn't married. I was lucky I had no kids. It was me and the dog. And uh, that, that's and all there was. A bunch of ramen. A <laughs> yeah, bunch of ramen. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have, you know, two nickels to rub together. <clears throat> but uh, one day I received a phone call. And I remember the guy's name was Paul. I don't remember his last name. Uh, I do remember his nickname was uh, Fax, F-A-C-T-S, Fax. And I remember asking him, uh, why do they call you Fax? And he said, because I got all the facts. I'm like, hey. <laughs> so he was uh, he was Toto's manager. Oh, my gosh. 
And he said, yeah, I've got Jeff Beccaro who wants you to do a uh, finish for him for the next tour that's coming up. And I said, I'd love to do it. So um, he set up a meeting and I'm trying to remember where the first meeting was. Um, it was a, they were uh, recording a, uh, or shooting a video in like way down in the middle of downtown LA. I mean, in a really scary part of downtown LA. So I, I, uh, I drove down there and I had my photo book and, you know, showing examples of colors and things and uh, met with Jeff for probably like 10, 15 minutes, something like that. And um, he said uh, uh, he had a cover of the of the record, which I if I remember was a uh, that was a greatest hits record. And I wish I still had that. It was a CD cover, you know. And I, I, it's, I may have that somewhere, but I just don't know where it is right now. But he took this CD cover. It was the one that has the, the, the sword on the, on the front, of the, uh, front of the record, or front yep. of the CD cover. And he took uh, about a quarter inch uh, circle with a pen on, the, on one part of the, uh, uh, on the cover. And that inside that quarter inch, you know, like the size of an eraser on a pencil, he said, that's the color I want right there. Jesus. And I'm like, okay. So I took the cover and I went to my paint company and I had some paint mixed and then I shot a sample. And I took the sample. I don't remember where I took the sample or if he came by my house because where he lived was three miles from my house, four miles, maybe something like that. Yeah, because they were all... L.A. kids. Yeah, exactly. He lived in uh, uh, Hidden Hills. Do you remember where Hidden Hills is? I do. Okay. All too well. Yeah, he lived in Hidden Hills, and I lived near Topanga and Ventura. So, yep. I mean, you, you know, that's very close. So oh, yeah. it, it could have been that he came by, but I seem to remember going someplace and, and him looking at it and saying, yeah, let's." Uh, I wanted a little darker. And I said, well, why don't I just paint, paint the drums black first? And then let's do the, the, this mix over the black. And, you know, that'll probably get it to right where we want it. He said, yeah, let's give it a try. So I did that. And um, I took him that. And he said, that's perfect. That's right on the money. So um, I, got the, uh, I got the drums delivered to the house and painted them. And that was, that was basically it. Now... If if memory serves, he was playing Pearl back then, Japanese-made Pearl shells, yeah? Uh, yes, but not on this kit. Really? Yes, on this kit, it was Keller 8-ply maple shells. Okay. And uh, um, then uh, all, the, all of the hardware was powder-coated black. And um, I, got, I got everything from Pearl, including badges. So... Um, when it came time for the badges, I, uh, uh, I think on this one, I think he dropped by the house on the way into work one day. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, it was. It was. And I'll tell you why I remember that. Uh, so he dropped by the house just to see how everything was going. And uh, I said, we're in, in my drum room where I had a, uh, uh, a pearl rack. <clears throat> and... Um, I said, where are we going to put uh, the badges? 
you know, I've, I've got a ton of badges. Where do you, where do you want them? And he looked at me and in that low baritone voice that he had, he goes, we're not putting that shit on the drums. <laughs> and he said, and then he pointed to the rack on the, on the rack. There was a little brass badge that said drum rack created by Jeff Picaro and Paul Jameson. He said, that's the only advertisement they get is, is that right there. And my first thing that came out, came to my mind, man, it is good to be Jeff. <laughs> so this is a this is a relationship that became very intimate, if 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 I may say so, because you have an unequivocally one of drumming's most influential drummers of many styles. You have your expertise hand making his instrument that he's going to communicate to millions with. Right. So it's. It's really you that that went into those drums for him to be as prolific. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was, uh, I, you know, I knew him for a very short amount of time because he passed away, you know. Suddenly, yes. Very shortly after I, I did that job. I remember, I remember the last time I saw him, I went down to... Uh, there was a paint store called Standard Brands on Ventura Boulevard, and I went down there to get some supplies, and he was there with uh, with two of his kids. <clears throat> and I, I went up and I said, hey, Jeff, how's it going? And he, hey, big hugs and, you know, the whole thing. And, and I said, what are you up to these days? And he goes, oh, I just did a record with David Gilmore and Bruce Springsteen. I'm like, again, it is good to be Jeff. That's amazing. That is and so it was cool. Very shortly after that, that he that he uh, passed away. Yeah. Well, now, now that we've established that relationship and the intent of where those drums were, you did mention something that pops up quite frequently on the internet, social media, and a lot of naysayers. You mentioned that the drums that you painted were Keller shells. Mm-hmm. For those that don't know, Keller is a drum shell manufacturer. Period. Actually, if I do. may, if I, if I may, please. Keller is Keller is actually a conglomerate of companies. Okay. They own a, a aluminum extruding company. They own a this company. They own a that company. The smallest portion of of the Keller family business is the uh, uh, is called Keller Wood Products. Okay. It's the very, very, very small portion of their business. Most wow. of what Keller Wood Products does is furniture. The oh. smallest part of their entire business portfolio is drum shells. It's a drum shells are like a speck on uh, on what Keller does. Well, as as the drumming public knows it, that's what they're known for. Yes, if I may. of course, of course. Yep. So. They make good stuff. They know how mm -hmm. to do it. They have the equipment, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars, if I may. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the, the amount of money to make shells is mind-blowing. Yep, it is. And unfortunately, there's, there's two sides to that coin. Some people are in favor of or they are against Keller shells. I'm ambivalent. I think they make great shells and they've made great shells for years and now you're as you've just 
stated, they've been making them for a very long time, being just a small portion of their business. Mm-hmm. But there are those in space that try to pin the flag on prolific builders such as yourself. Oh, well, they just use Keller shells anyway. It doesn't matter. Sure. There's no big deal. I, if memory serves, I don't think you use Keller shells at all as a company, do you? Uh, when I make a 26-inch bass drum, they're the only company that makes a 26-inch bass drum. So you, okay. you have to use a Keller shell. But no, okay. I, I haven't used. Uh, uh, I get shells from Keller when I'm when I'm in a spot, but okay. uh, they have they have high minimums, and shipping from them, you know, I might as well be shipping something to Europe because they're in uh, New Hampshire, uh-huh. I'm in California. Oh God, you know, I mean, shipping is uh, horrendous from them, um, and and again, they have very high minimums. They work with me because I've I have been doing business with them for you know, 30 plus years. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know the guys at uh, Keller very well, but I, I had gone to uh, different places to get my shells and uh, th- that's what I still do. Okay. And that was one of the big myths that pops up on forums in, in almost a derogatory light, which I think is unfounded because I, I think the general population tends to open mouth, insert foot. Yeah. Because well, you'll if, get if I may, they, they talk out of their ass. There you go. And <laughs> and and it's true because you'll hear people even on the side of the DW debate, people will say, oh, the Keller shell DWs were better than the current day build DW shells. It's like, well, wait a minute. If it's OK for DW to use Keller shells, why do you poo poo others? They're like it, it's such a bullshit social media forum based. I'm invisible. I can speak my mind level of stupidity that I'm just like, you don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, uh, the, the, the other part of that, uh, you know, I like my Keller DW kit better. Yeah. The, the thing, the thing about when, when Keller was supplying shells to, um, uh, to DW, they uh-huh. were used, they were using a completely different layup. It really has nothing to do with that. With that, uh, whether DW made the shells or, or Keller made the shells, it was the layup of the shells. Now, could you explain that a little bit for those that, let's just say, think they have an idea but really don't? Yeah, it's how the it's how you cross laminate things to to make the shell strong, and how many plies you put in to make the shell strong. You know, it's uh, Keller is uh, the one thing about Keller is they'll they'll make stuff, but they want it to be you know, they want it to be what they've made for the past 50 years. They, they don't want to, uh, they don't, they really don't like doing something that's outside of their comfort zone. Okay. So when DW is getting shells from Keller, they were getting their standard Keller shells. Then DW started making their shells and they changed uh, the, their, the shell composition, which I would do the same thing. If I had my own presses, I'd be making what I want to make. Not what that I to me. Get. And that to me makes the most sense. That's almost as if to say, and, and maybe this is a terrible analogy, but I don't think a lot of people fully understand the quote custom drum market. And I think there are two types of, of builders. I think there are those that are much like the orange County choppers. Hey, we're going to, we're going to buy a frame from somebody and we're going to make all this cool custom fixtures. And it's now a custom bike, even though it's really not a custom bike. Sure. 
But then there are those that are really getting into the nuts and bolts of, I'm going to hand weld this frame or thing myself, and I'm actually going to make this. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, a correct analogy would be you're either Orange County Choppers or you're uh, Jesse James. There you go. Yeah, because Jesse James makes everything. Yep. Like him (laughs) or not like him, I, I think the guy is insanely talented. And, well, he was, uh, he was a great bouncer when he was over at Cherry Street, Cherry Hill Tavern. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, but I mean, he, he likes to make everything, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and because he's not looking at, uh, uh, you know, that last building that Orange County Choppers had with all the glass and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's no wonder they went out of business because you, you know, you have a nut like that. And all of a sudden business changes and, you know, you're screwed. Does, and speaking of Jesse, does he still have his one place down in Long Beach? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think he moved to Texas. Oh, I'm wow. Sure. Wow. That's crazy. Well, as we move into the, as we, as we're still talking about a little bit of the aesthetics of, of pork pie and, and really its roots, how did you arrive at the hourglass lug casing? Like what, what of that shape really was, how was that epiphanal moment where you were just like, yeah, that's what my lug casing is going to be. Um, honestly, yeah, it's sitting on a couch, uh, watching, uh, you know, watching some TV with a drawing pad and just drawing stuff. I, I mean, that's it. Sometimes it, uh, Nikki six says it best. Your, your number one song is the one that takes five minutes to write. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, when I'm coming up with a new design or a new product or something, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I mean, Roger, I'm old school, you know, I'm almost 60 years old, right? There's some people that do everything on, uh, uh, uh on a computer. I'm still drawing everything by hand. When I, I draw my, I draw my, if you can believe this, when I design a new part, I draw everything because this is what I was trained to do in, in college. That's what I mm-hmm. studied in college. And then that was my job at Rocketdyne. I was a draftsman. Oh, wow. So when I draw a part, I'm drawing it by hand. And then I send it off to, uh, uh, you know, to Taiwan, to the uh, manufacturer. And then they, they make the, uh, uh, the mechanical drawing on, uh, uh, on a computer. But I still draw everything by hand. That's so cool. Well, let's let's kind of segue into a little bit of drum technology, and maybe we can get get some ideas in your your perspectives. Because I have my own concepts about snare drums, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of want to get to something where a lot of people are more familiar with your snare drums because they see them everywhere. Sure. But let's but let's maybe talk about snare drums. Like, pick any snare drum that is kind of an everyday snare for you. What's your thought process when you go into considering a snare drum? Um, I, uh, I don't know if I really work that way. I think I work more of, um, uh, if I want to, uh, come up with a shell that has a vintage sound. Okay. What am I going to, what am I going to use that is, you know, going to, going to make, a snare drum sound like a like a vintage Ludwig snare drum. Okay. What, what materials can I use? What edges am I gonna uh, am I gonna use? So uh, the uh, 
the, you know, I mean, if I if I hear a snare drum uh, that we, we we make here, and it's not really what I'm looking for, I'll tell the guys, okay, uh, we need to uh, we need to redo the edges, or that's uh, it, it doesn't have enough punch, so we need to put rings in it. We need to do this, you know. I mean, I can I can because I've been doing it so long. I know what changes are going to happen by just hearing how the how the drum is sounding that kind of makes sense yeah absolutely now in that same vein there's i'm a big believer in choosing the right snare drum for the right job sure don't try to put a square peg into a round hole and make this snare drum fit your mold or your ideal because that's i believe that that's not the end result you're actually looking for sure is that is that something that you believe as well or along that same line? Yeah, it, uh, it all, uh, I mean, I think it comes down to how, uh, 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 if you're trying to have us, uh, like if you're here, here's the analogy. If, if you're, if you're going to be doing a ballad, a piccolo is not going to work. Absolutely. You know, without, without having to, uh, really screw up, you know, to, without having to process the crap out of it, that's that's basically you know the thing. You know, and I want to have I want to have a snare drum that I, I have to uh, 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 muffle the least and play with the least on the board. So a better so choosing so again going back to the statement, choosing the right drum for the right job makes all the difference in the world, and your finished product is much better. And I'll and. I say that because we have clients from around the world now, and it's not uncommon for them to ask me, hey, I'm thinking about a 14 by seven or 14 by eight. I really want to get a super loud, tight piccolo crack out of them, like then just buy a piccolo. Sure. Well, no, but I really want the 14 by seven or eight. Why? You're mm -hmm. not, and, and I literally will have arguments with them going, that's not the right drum for that sound. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up killing the sound. You're going to end up over tightening it. You're, you're working against yourself to achieve that sound. Yeah. And you're, and you're going to be so frustrated. It'll, it'll get rid of all the fun of the, of having a new drum. Exactly. And, and, and it frustrates me to no end because there are so many people. And I just saw it on social media yesterday. Somebody was talking about drum heads and they said, Oh, well that drum head would be great to do this. And literally three messages later, no, that snare drum head will actually make it do this. I'm like, oh my fucking God, are you kidding me? Yeah. Pay attention. Pay attention to what you people are saying before you just start blabbering gibberish out of your fingers. And, it, and, and I have to be careful because I'm a retailer. Uh-huh. Oh, sure. I, I can't. I, I want to step in and go. Actually, can I help you with a little bit of this real information? Sure. But then all of a sudden, now you're getting lambasted from other people who think they know more. I'm like, yeah, welcome to my life. Oh God, I, <laughs> I, I mean, and I really have to mind my p's and q's. Sure. Because I, inside, I am losing my shit. Going, you guys are fucking morons. Yeah. But I. But then I got to put my kid gloves on and. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah, do you so, got to talk yourself off the cliff? Oh, Jesus, jumping Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and here's and in talking about snare drums, 
a hot topic of debate that nobody really understands, I think, in the general population are snare beds. Uh-huh. I have a functional understanding of them, but could you shed a little bit more light into how a snare bed actually affects the overall sound of a snare drum? Is it a more of a response thing for the wires? Like maybe give just a little bit of clarity to the mysterious snare bed. Yeah, what this, what a snare bed does is it creates an arc on the bottom head so that the uh, snare wires can uh, 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 rest against or be pulled against the uh, bottom head of the snare drum. Now, does the width, depth, the shape, does do all of those little things truly affect the overall sound of the drum or is it really just it it's applicable to what wires or what what's how did how does that change anything well i i am a fan of uh 20 strand snare wires i don't think you need anything more than that okay so uh I don't want to get into the technicalities of my snare bed, but if a nope, snare bed fine. is too narrow, you're, if a snare bed is too narrow, you're not going to create that arc that goes over the bottom head. Okay. You're going to have a spot like uh, uh, snare beds on old Gretsch snare drums. It looks like this. somebody took a, you know, uh, uh, scooped out the snare beds. Yep. And I mean, we've all seen them. You have to tune those two lugs tighter to get rid of the wrinkles. Okay. So basically what you're doing is you have uh, where the snare bed is, you have like a, you know, uh, uh, a dished out spot, but it's it's so narrow and so deep that you actually are still have a flat plane on the uh, in the middle of the snare, uh, uh, middle of the snare bottom head. So if it's my thing is if it's wider and not as deep, then that it creates a nice arc on the bottom head. Now, I've over the years, I've kind of come to a way of tuning new snare drums and tuning every drum to achieve a good sound for that drum. Mm -hmm. I, and, and I think I'm fairly proficient at it. Sure. To a point where we here at the drum shop, we do we work on more working man's drums and more players drums than I think there are people getting gigs. Sure. Um, and it's and I've gotten to a point where I can kind of troubleshoot a snare drum pretty quickly. Sure. And I've gotten into the practice of detuning the four tension rods at the snare beds uh -huh. a quarter to a half a turn to allow a little bit more flexibility in the head to maybe reach that arc. And I've and it, and, it, and what it's allowed me is the butt plates of the wires to kind of really settle into that area and get that contact of the wires better. Mm -hmm. Sure. Am I in your experience? Is that a, a is that a, a good direction is the idea there or what's what what's your take on that? Well, I think it would uh, depend on the drum okay. uh, because uh, uh, all the different manufacturers have their own snare beds. Right. So, um, uh, on some drums, you're, you know, you would need to uh, to do that. On uh, say, on, on for the way I cut my uh, my edges and my beds on my snare drums, mm -hmm. the idea is that you can still tune the head evenly all the way around. Um, 
you know, by tapping the edge and, and, and or using a drum dial, which I've never used myself, but to get a, to get all the lugs uh, even and still have uh, a, a nice responsive snare drum. Okay, cool. Now, oddly enough, you indirectly answered one of the next questions, which was the Super 30s and the 42 strand wires. Mm-hmm. And that you don't see the need. I've... I don't necessarily like using any of those multiple strands personally in the thirties or 42s, unless that drum is seven, eight, nine, ten 10 inches deep. Cause there's more air being moved. Sure. Is that a, is that a fair kind of perspective on that? Or is it unnecessary even at that depth? Um, I don't see it as being uh, necessary. Uh, but it, again, it depends on the drum and the okay. type of cone that the guy's trying to get out of it. Okay. And the concept of using a 30 or a 42 on a piccolo is just ridiculous in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, the, the basic, uh, 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 thought on that is that the, um, if the snare beds aren't cut to accept the 40, uh, the 40 strand snare wire, uh, then there, there's going to be parts of the uh, uh, snare wire that aren't even o- over, you know, by the uh, the throw off in the butt plate. There's going to be parts where it's not even touching. So you, they're just not even going to be affected by the snare head anyway. Right. Well, that that. Thank you very much. I <laughs> <laughs> because it's it it is something where I have to I have to be very tentative in how I'm working with people's snare drums because everybody has this idea. And I think there's so much bad information on the web that now it's becoming pros and becoming fact. And I'm just like, it's not though. Yeah. And well, see, here, here's the thing on, uh, people ask me to put a 40 strand. I'm working on a, uh, uh, waiting for a shell to come in for a snare drum that I'm making for a guy. And he said, I want to have a 40, I want to put a 40 strand uh, snare wire on it. And I said, well, my bed isn't really cut for that. And what I didn't get, it, what I, it, I didn't want to get too technical with them. But what the the deal is with that is that my my snare bed. The one thing that I will say on my snare bed is that I have a, a, a right where the the middle part of the snare bed. <clears throat> I have a two inch wide spot in there that is cut completely flat. So that's where everything starts is from that flat area in the middle. And two inches is just a little bit over the size of a snare wire. So then I'm creating, my theory is, is I'm creating a flat area across the bottom snare head where that snare wire can sit flat against the head. And, that make, and to me, that makes perfect sense. Right. I, I, that to me makes all the sense in the world. Because now you're, you're functionally putting the wires into the happiest place on that drum to get the best sound out of that drum. Right. And well, I thank you for that because that absolutely just makes me feel very, very pleased with where, what, and not to toot my own horn, but more of just, I'm not, I I feel now as though I'm not just talking out of my ass, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, and a lot of it is really just hands-on and practicality. Um, you know, in LA, when I was living there as a kid, that year in 1987, 
that you were moving in your direction, I had actually exited the music space and I got really involved in cycling and you may or may not remember um, in North Hollywood, there was a shop that was run by Bobby Kemp and he was the guy that built the wheels for the 84 Olympic team. And I went to him to learn how to build wheels. Ah, okay. Cause that was the next phase in my education and the shop that I was at on Van Nuys Boulevard Valley cyclery, which was kind enough to give me my first introduction to bicycle mechanics it's not that they were a remove and replace shop. They did a lot of detailed repair on a lot of products, but sure. I think they they were they didn't really delve deeply into truly custom wheel sets where Bobby really had that information. Sure, he was he was a little little ahead of where other people were. He was that guy and it was it was a mythical experience to me. Much like your dad teaching you how to really as kids to instill that you can fix this. You can make this. You can do this. Mm-hmm. It literally was that same process. And I, and I bring that up because now a lot of the skills that I learned at that first bike shop in Van Nuys, I excelled in that career in the bicycle space for a very, very long time and did a lot of cool stuff. But even today, I use a lot of that same aptitude, that same linear thinking, that same basic troubleshooting of if A, then B. If not B, then you've got to go to B1. And Sure. And in looking at all these drums, when I, as a kid playing and a young person and a young adult playing, I, I understood tuning, but I didn't fully get it. Sure. And then as an adult, when I left the cycling industry and went back to being in the music industry, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to this tuning thing than I even began to understand. Oh yeah. 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 And it's just something that I truly enjoy doing. Like I love tuning people's drums. I love taking people's drums and they say, this thing sounds like shit. They hand it to me. And within, if it's a snare drum, usually within a few turns of a tuning key and a couple adjustments on a snare where it's like, ta-da, it's not that hard. So I spend a lot of time pulling that curtain back going, look, you can do this. You just need to understand the parameters of what you're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. And you have the real world application because you've been building it and designing it and creating it. And you have that understanding that I don't. So to glean some of that is truly helpful to me. And I, well, and also the other, the other part of it was uh, when I was uh, first starting the business and not making any money, I started going into the studios and tuning and, uh, you know, tuning drums for records. Oh, wow. So, you, you know, I did, I did that for years. What were some of the records and some of the bands that you got to work with and work on? Uh, God, it was so long ago. I, I worked, uh, I worked on a record with, uh, Greg Bissonette. He did the, uh, uh, one of the many versions of a Queensryche record. Oh, wow. Uh, I worked on that. Um, I was in the studio when they were recording, uh, the spaghetti incident for Guns N' Roses. Oh my and gosh. Threw my two cents in with that. I was just hanging out, you know, but they would ask me a question and I'd say, well, I think this. I did a little bit on uh, uh, Slash's Snake Pit, his uh, first solo record. Um, I worked with Paul Fox uh, on a bunch of records that, you know, were most of what I did was, you know, small stuff at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, smaller studios. I didn't do like a Mike Fasano and do all the Blink records or the, you know, uh, Goo Goo Dolls or, you know, uh, uh, that type of thing. That was, that was his thing. 
mm-hmm. was filling in. I was filling in the shit that he didn't want to do. Gotcha. Well, it's, there's no better teacher than by applying your principles into the real world, though. Yeah. And speaking of real world, the videos are out and people are aware that you're the guy doing the finished production of Roger's snare drums. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm looking at, uh, right now I'm looking at uh, about 65-inch uh, uh, snare drum shells that we're going to be working on in the future. I've got uh, the new colors that are coming in, which I can't say what they are because I don't know if I'm allowed to. No, that's okay. Uh, we've got a, 150 of these new drums that are coming in uh, uh, on the 3rd of uh, September and we're going to be working on those and we're working on all kinds of cool stuff with that. So how did that relationship start? How did you get involved in the Rogers project? Like how did that conversation take place? How involved were you? Can you give us a little bit of kind of understanding and clarity? Sure. Um, I was at the the last NAM show that I, that I did, you know, cause I don't do NAM anymore. Right. Um, the last one of the last NAM shows, it might have been two, the second to the last NAM that I did. <clears throat> one of the reps for uh, the company over in Taiwan called Reliance uh, International. Yep, very familiar. Uh, came up to me and said, uh, Hey, we just bought the uh, rights to Rogers. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And he said, uh, Yes, it is very cool. And we'd like you to do all the manufacturing for us. And Holy I said, shit. I said, well, I'm honored and I'm in. You just let me know what I need to do. <laughs> and Yes, please and thank you. Yeah. And then later on, uh, uh, when I saw this, this person again, his name is Mike Sales. When I saw Mike again, <clears throat> I said to him, uh, how many people did you go to for this? And he said, well, it was, a, it was a short list. And I said, well, how many were on the list? And he said, uh, one. He said, you are our only choice. And if you said no, we had no idea what we were going to do. Holy shit. Yeah. That's hugely awesome. So at that moment, you almost, it was almost as if a beam of light hit you. Like, holy crap, I was the guy. Uh, yeah, I, I said, uh, I said, Michael, I'm, I'm honored and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun doing it and I, I can't thank you enough for thinking of me. And he said, he goes, we're the ones that need to thank you. Don't, you know, we, you're doing, you're doing this, uh, you're doing a huge favor for us. Wow. So now, now that the cat's out of the bag, you're the guy that's bringing this legendary brand. And it was literally my first drum kit decades ago. Um, you're, you are the guy bringing this brand physically back to life. Yeah, pretty much. That's awesome. That it, is was Reli- so- it was, it was Reliance, you know, buying the brand from Yamaha. Yep. And taking the time and energy and, and a, a tremendous amount of money to retool everything uh you know i mean everything they tooled everything so they went back to oe spec yeah to like just all original as yeah. much as then they went wow. out and bought a bunch of uh, uh wood dinosonics from that era and they sent them to me and they said okay here's here's what you're going to copy 
and we set about to figure out how they were made. So were you just, and, and this might be sacrilegious and you don't necessarily have to answer this, but were you having to destroy these drums to kind of pull them apart and really look at the guts? No, they, they had, uh, the only thing that we did was we tore them apart so we could get measurements as to where everything was because oh, they, okay. they had already, uh, they had already uh, made the shell. So, okay. uh, you know, and the shell is the, the lifeblood of this, uh, of this uh, snare drum. I mean, the shell is spectacular. And um, what's so its they, composition? They shell. It's, uh, it's maple poplar. It's a three ply shell, maple uh -huh. poplar maple. And then there's a two ply ring. And I'm not sure, uh, only cause I've never asked if the, the ring is all maple or if it's maple and poplar. I don't know on that one. Okay. So they had the shell, they sent me shells. The first ones, uh, uh, they sent me had no finish on the inside and it was basically just to prototype, nothing more than to prototype, figure out how they worked. Okay. So we put them together and I, I put an edge on that I thought would work. And then we sent, uh, 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 the drums went to, uh, uh, that I made, uh, went to Steve Jordan. He was the guy who was doing the, uh, uh, you know, the final approval of everything. Holy so crap. We, they were sent to him and then he, uh, he said, he goes, no, nah, it's not there. He goes, this is how I want it changed. And I said, I know exactly how to do it. So I got them back, recut the edges, put the, the, the edge on that uh, I thought would be the one and sent them to him. And he said, they're perfect. Holy shit snacks. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. I, and you'll have to forgive me. I'm gushing a little bit because I know a couple of years ago when I got into your car, I had conveniently or inconveniently asked you. And hey, hold on. You... Let's 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 tell people you got in my car because we were at NAM. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I had kind of heard grumblings and in my heart of hearts. I truly believed you were the one that they were talking to about it and you couldn't answer and you couldn't necessarily allude to, but you also didn't deny. Sure. And I didn't press and I left it that that's where I left it, but it was just to hear it now is freaking awesome. Yeah. And see the, the way I've always approached it and the, the way I've approached everything that I do for other companies is that it's not mine. So it's not my, it, it, it's not mine to talk about until I'm told that I can talk about it. Agreed. Yeah. You know, so that, that's where, where that came from. So, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just kept it under wraps until, uh, well, first off, I kept it under wraps to make sure that I was going to be the one that was doing it because up until then, it, you know, it, you know how it is. I mean, it could have oh, yeah. changed in a, in a heartbeat. God, that's super, super cool. So there's there's a huge sense of pride that you get to bring this piece of history back to the drumming community. Well, I tell my guys all the time, I, you know, we, we're, we're ma working on stuff, and I'm like, so you guys realize that we're making history here, right? And do they, do they understand the brevity of that statement or the enormity of that statement? Uh, I think they've understood over time when they see the reaction that people have, uh, you know, online. Okay. They understand it then, but at the time they're like, no, oh, we're just making stuff. Cause I hold pork pie drums 
in a certain reverence because I've known you for so long and I've watched the history of the company and I'm honored to be a retailer of yours. And, and to see all of these other things kind of come to fruition for you and the family and the company and, you know, watching, watching your kids grow up and you going through the things it, there, there is a, a familial sense that I have towards pork pie. Same with Jeremy mm-hmm. over at Q drum, you know, Jeremy, right. oddly enough, he and I knew each other without actually knowing each other. And then when we came, when I came to open the store and we got in contact, I was like, holy shit. So it's that, like, holy shit, that's you. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it was just the most bizarre thing. I was like, holy crap. It's like uh, the person I knew I didn't know. And I'm like, holy crap. And that's, and that's kind of the premise of what, what I do here at the drum shop is I'm not going to carry something that I don't believe in. Sure. I don't, cause I can't get behind it. Mm-hmm. I have a very hard time with it. And to see this, this wheel roll down the hill and, and watch this growth and this, this amazing spark of, of imagination and history come to life. And you're the guy that's behind it it just endears me that much more to what you do as a company and what pork pie stands for. And I appreciate that. I'm super humbled to, to even know you as a result. Well, I do I, appreciate I, that. Uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. Sure, sure. Please bear with us for just a moment. Bill had to step away from the interview to take care of a couple things at the shop. Let's get back to our interview with Bill Dedimore of Pork Pie Percussion on Too Stupid to Know That I Can't. So just, um, so two more quick questions and I'll get out yep. of your ear. Yep, no problem. With the success that Rogers and Reliant has seen with the snare drums, the pedals, the accessories, do you think, and this is a hypothetical and you don't have to answer, do you think a drum kit is off in the future? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we've been prototyping uh, uh, drum sets for a while, but oh, wow. uh, they're 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 working on hardware and uh, you know uh, uh, um, different types of because uh, uh, we we don't want to put something out that has generic hardware on it, so they're retooling everything. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! That's that makes me so happy because. With our distributor, Big Bang, they're the ones responsible for retail for distributing all of the Rogers products, correct? Right. Yep. So we've I haven't bought Rogers, I haven't brought Rogers snare drums in yet, only because I've really wanted to see the momentum and the movement, and I've wanted to get kind of your take on everything. Uh-huh. But I've wanted to be able to tell a really good historical story about why we are now carrying because Let's be honest, when Yamaha bought the Rogers brand, they just shoved it into like a doorstop and said, ah, it's got the Rogers name on it, it'll sell. Sure. And it, and it was just, like, it hurt my heart to see what they didn't do with that brand. Right. So my, my hesitation with moving forward was, I know Reliant is a company through another vendor that we carry here that not a lot of people believe is tied to that and is as powerful as that. But I knew with their enormity and their quality of work than with you it's like 
okay, this all makes sense. Sure. Yep. Um, so it's good to hear that drum shells will be next. I'm super excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we've been working on them. We prototyped the first ones uh, probably around this time last year. Oh, wow. Cool. And uh, they're, they're uh, you know, experimenting with different shells and different finishes and, you know, just different things. Now, is Mr. Jordan still involved in that process as well? Or is he uh, just, or is honestly, he just really? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay. And one final question, I'll get out of your hair. What's the future for Pork Pie Percussion? What, what do you see in the next, let's just say, five years for you? Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't, uh, with the way the business is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the overall drum business, uh, it's hard to plan that far in the future. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, working on some different shell designs and, uh, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, we're just doing what we do. Um, We've got some new squealer drums that are that are, that are coming out so that, that just uh, hit uh, uh, hit some stores, and um, so I, I know that one thing uh, that I'm doing is that I have to <clears throat> I need to go through and uh, I've had a lot of the same products on uh, that I've been selling for a long time and I've been discontinuing things. Mm -hmm. And putting new things in and uh, trying to change up what I'm doing, you know. Uh, so th I have been working on that. That's awesome. But I don't have, like, uh, I couldn't say I've got, uh, th this is my plan right now. One of the, th well, I can tell you one of the things I am doing is I've uh, uh, started working with a uh, shell company over in Italy. So I'm getting some really exotic shells from them. So mm -hmm. I'm excited about that, uh, to be able to do something that's other than maple or birch. Oh, cool. But, you know, it's, it's tough because, uh, I mean, you know what the, uh, what the business is like now. And, you know, selling a uh, six, seven, eight hundred dollars snare drum is not the easiest thing in the world right now. The industry as a whole has taken a very dramatic turn. Right. Uh, especially in drum retail. And it's, it is something that is affecting us not just stateside but i think it's a, it, right now it's a global anom anomaly that it's a rear it's a very very weird kind of dark spot as to what's been happening you know prices are changing and the used market is just this abyss of gear and I, i'm just it, it's it's hard normally i can i can see some trends i can see some things that make sense nothing to me makes any sense of where the industry's at right now drum wise yeah uh, that's uh, the same for everybody and i and i think there's a lot of people panicking and i think there are a lot of companies panicking well you know the um uh the the tariffs that everybody that uh, china is getting hit with is is not helping anybody it's not helping the cause because you know a lot of companies uh yeah, uh, you know, a lot of American companies get get things from China. They get things from, uh, you know, uh, uh, when it's brought in from China, all of a sudden, if it's a full drum set, and the price of that drum set went up twenty five percent. Yep. You know, twenty five percent is not something that uh, a manufacturer can um, uh, can absorb. You know, that's a Agreed. lot of money. So yeah, that, we just... that has affected everybody a lot. 
um, and the, the raw materials for um, making drums uh, have gone up. That's why you saw the price increase at the be you know this year. Yeah, I, I mean, I went to Guitar Center. I said, okay, this is uh, where I need to be on pricing, and they said, yeah, don't worry about it. Everybody's raised their prices. Yeah, and everybody raised their prices just about the same amount because we all got hit with the same increase. Yeah, like we just had to update all of our all of our Gibraltar all of our Gibraltar small parts, hardware replacement parts. Yep, all of it. And I mean, it it killed our margin because they weren't able to raise MSRP or MAP. Sure. I mean it absolutely crushed our margin any yeah. flexibility we had on gibraltar is gone sure i mean it was mind-blowing and ce he actually went through the tariff document all of it and was blown away at which materials which things were affected like he was just blown away and he was like you're not going to believe this right and it's it's definitely had its its effects um, but you know, on the plus side, we still get to do what we love and there's still people out there that are willing to, to invest in amazing instruments. And I am truly a, a proud pork pie retailer and I, Bill, I can't thank you enough for taking this time today. I know you guys are super slammed, but I'm, I am very grateful for you taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, absolutely. I've enjoyed myself a lot. Let me, let me put one thing in. Sure. Um, one of the, uh, uh, the, not only was there an increase of, of goods coming out of China, <clears throat> but also there was an increase in goods coming out of Taiwan. And the increase on the stuff coming out of Taiwan uh, came in because of the uh, higher material costs. The raw material costs went up for them. Yeah. But the, the, uh, the thing that uh, they're struggling with uh, over in Taiwan is labor. You know, the days uh, you, you always hear people say, oh, you know, this came from Taiwan. Uh, you know, they they uh, they pay, you know, a bowl of rice a day and, or, you know, a dollar a day or whatever. But what people don't realize is that Taiwan, uh, you know, back in the day, that was probably the case. But right mm -hmm. now, uh, from stuff coming from Taiwan, they have uh, the... Uh, uh, minimum wages have uh, been in uh, are now in place in Taiwan, so there's a minimum price that they a minimum wage that they can pay two people to do the work. So there's that, and then also uh, from the laws over in Taiwan, uh, when somebody starts working for a company, they have to give them health insurance, they have to give them dental, they have to give them vi uh, uh, vision. Oh wow! Uh, so. You know, the days of uh, a bowl of rice uh, are so far gone that it's not even uh, a, a part of the equation anymore. It's hard costs and uh, labor is the biggest issue in Taiwan. That's that's both that's a very positive thing to hear that that type of change has occurred, because that was something that was always, always a challenge, um, I think, in a lot of those industrialized countries because i would coming from the cycling industry we saw back in the 80s we saw the change when manufacturing started to going away from the states it went to india to indonesia then it started to do the china taiwan thing and everybody was still super hell-bent on usa made usa made and i'm like well 
I understand what you're saying, but have you seen the quality that's coming out of Taiwan? Have you seen the work that they're producing? And now when I get, oh, well, it's made in Taiwan, I'm like, hang on now, killer. Yeah, exactly. Walk, walk through your house and show me something that's American made. Yeah. Please. And then I always point to the perspective of think of how tiny of an island Taiwan is and how much sheer volume of product and variety of products they produce. Sure. It's mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, look at the iPhones, you know, everybody, everybody in the world has an iPhone. Where does it come from? Taiwan. Yeah, yeah there computer. was, where does where does where's an app, Apple computer come from? Yeah. Well, there was, there was talk that, um, they were fine. That Foxconn was finally going to put a manufacturing facility in Wisconsin. Right. They couldn't because they couldn't find a stateside manufacturer of the tiny screws that most Mac products use. Mm -hmm. They couldn't find somebody to make enough screws to meet the demand. Yeah, that service what they need. Yeah, that blew my mind. That means production level is so high that we at, at the United States level cannot make enough screws. Right. Blows my mind. So I, I, I try to, like the, the product lines that we carry in the store, I tried to make a very, I tried to make them as globally aware as possible. We've got Sonar for German, Sakai for Japanese, uh, Dixon and PDP for Taiwan, China, um, Pork Pie and Sakai, and we just picked up a couple pieces from Doc Sweeney for USA made stuff. But everybody has their own niche. Sure. Um, and, and I try not to have any crossover products. So, for example, PDP is my under 1,000 all maple shell. There you go. That's done. They're category killers. We know it. It's, it's just a no-brainer. But Dixon, I don't bring in their maple shells. I bring in their composite shells, their maple mahoganies, their cherry mahoganies, the more unique shell compositions. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and that just gives our clients a little bit more variety instead of, oh, I saw that Pearl. I saw that Ludwig. I saw that blah, blah, blah. Like, I just didn't want to do that. Sure. So when so when Sonar, for example, came into the picture, we don't buy any of their Taiwanese drums because we already, already got it from somebody else. Yeah, we have it. We just want the German made stuff. Yeah. And it really has helped us be a differentiator in the marketplace because now if somebody goes, I want a Sonar drum kit, I know that I've got to go to Roger because he's got the German stuff. He's got the vintage, he's got the SQ1s, and we can do SQ2s. Sure. That's it. We're, 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 that's as far as we go. Yep. Um, and it's just, it's nice to hear that, because I, I remember I had a conversation with, with DW that they were investing in their own factory overseas, and they were having a lag time in getting switched over because there was some labor issues that needed to be addressed and here you are saying yeah they had to move into minimum wages and benefits and now there's an actual working package for that population that's awesome yeah do you and and since we're on it do you get over there still on a regular basis to do a lot of qc stuff or has that now gotten pretty minimized no, I, you know, honestly, I would love to go over, uh, but uh, frankly, the money has not uh, been there for me to to get over there. Okay. 
so that's uh, that's basically it. And the other thing is, uh, <clears throat> which you know, I know this is a public forum here, but uh, sure, my mo- my mother died two two years ago. So yep, I remember um, uh, having a uh, an elderly parent that's not doing well does not really lend itself to leaving the country. Understood. Well, we know that was a very challenged time and losing a loved one, especially your mom or dad is always tough. And sure. we, you, you have our condolences and we, uh, I, I'm, I'm just very grateful that you were able to take the time today. Oh, sure. Um, like I said, I had a, a lot of fun and, you know, would love to do it again sometime. Well, we will probably be doing that sooner than later. Okay. That sounds good to me. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time today and I hope you have a fantastic day and enjoy your weekend. Oh, uh, speaking of uh, biking, the wife and I are going to be putting in uh, 20 miles tomorrow. Outstanding. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just, uh, you know, oddly enough, coming back from Breck Epic, I'm still kind of, I've ridden a couple times, but I just haven't got out as much this week. And it's, I think a lot of it's just playing catch up from being gone on sure. the bike for six days. But uh, you got yeah, time for your butt to heal. You know, I, <laughs> I got, I got, well, it got tender by the fourth day. Sure. Yep. <laughs> you know, at that point we were already 160 miles in, 100, 160 miles in by the fourth day. So it started to get a little tender. But yeah. Well, I hope you have a great ride this weekend. I hope you have some great weather and time. And thank you so much for joining us on Too Stupid to Know That I Can't. And Bill, thank you so much for everything yeah. that you do. Anytime. I'm uh, happy to help. Uh, anytime. Happy to participate. So j- you just let me know. All right. Well, sir, I appreciate you. And you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Too Stupid to Know That I Can't with Bill Dedimore of Pork Pie Percussion. We thank Bill greatly for his time with us, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, share it with your friends. Share it across the Internet. Give it a thumbs up or finger up or rate it or do whatever. I don't know, whatever the silly things are, but thank you so much. Have a great day and be good humans. Bye for now. There's a light that shines off in the distance. We may never know of its name. Where wealth is not measured in substance. And pleasure's not writhing in pain. Your promise has led me to ruin. Your kiss foretold of my grave And I'll gladly embrace the destruction And drink the remains of the days And as you go to sleep tonight There's no need for a guiding light I've got the whole world left to roam And I'm not coming home